what the government spends and what the government raises, you got to pay the bills. And it might be the case that for the marginal infrastructure bill, even if it's one or two trillion dollars, but like we need probably a lot more spending on education, healthcare, climate, and so on in the future. And if you start adding all of those things, we get to five, ten trillion dollars of maybe needed public goods, and we probably will need to pay for some of that. President Joe Biden plans to spend trillions. How are we going to pay for that? We're talking about raising taxes. This is the pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it slices, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about how to pay for infrastructure and all the other things the Biden administration plans to do. Should corporate taxes be raised? And what can you get from capital gains taxes? I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. Biden's strategy involves spending a lot of money. And this raises the question, where could all that money come from? I talked to Austin Goolsby, professor of economics at Chicago Booth and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. And Eric Zwick, associate professor of finance at Chicago Booth. I wanted to ask you a preliminary question, and I hope you both have some thoughts around the idea of Biden's plans to fund these large infrastructure and childcare efforts, you know, $1.8 trillion for the American Families Plan and $1.7 trillion for the infrastructure plan. Uh, the president has talked about raising the corporate income tax rate to 28% where it was before President Trump's tax cut of 2017, and also of doubling the capital gains tax for people earning a lot of money, over a million dollars. Why should we pay for this at all? I mean, this is infrastructure. It will make the economy more productive. Why not borrow and use their economic returns from these investments and the tax revenues they generate over the years to pay it back? I mean, interest rates, as you guys know, are still extremely low. Even a really low rate of return on the investment will be able to cover that. So wh why should we pay for it? Austin? I would start with the way that an economist normally thinks about this question is different than the way the public thinks or certainly than the politicians think. And that is there's a long run budget constraint on the government, which you, it doesn't have to be this year, but over the long run, what the government spends and what the government raises, you got to pay the bills. There is one part of my analysis that is quite sympathetic to, to your view of do we need to pay for it. It goes back to kind of a little wrinkle of government accounting. And by that, I mean the government uses an accounting system that's called cash accounting. And that's not what business uses. So a lot of times you'll hear these business people saying, well, you know, in my business, I always balance the budget. You know, why can't the government do that? And the thing is, in business, there are a series of things that don't count as debt, which are debt for the government. And there are a series of things 
which count as expenses, which a business wouldn't count. Okay, so the government, it only counts if it's cash out the door today. And so there's two types of spending that are going to fall between the cracks and be a problem if you are centered on a cash accounting system. The first are things like entitlements, like Medicare and Social Security, where the government has made an implicit promise that you are going to receive these payments when you retire. But they they aren't cash outlays today, so they do not count as debt. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, in a cash accounting system, you're going to tend to have way more of these soft obligations. And then the other place that's going to fail is anything that has a large upfront cost that pays out over time. A business, if they build a factory that's going to last 50 years, they do not incur that as an expense all in the first year that you build it. A business depreciates the cost of that thing over the lifetime of the asset. And the problem, as I see it, with the we must pay for everything dollar for dollar is that's defined using the cash accounting basis. And so things like building the highway system, which are going to last for 50 years, you shouldn't pay 50 times the annualized cost of that thing all in one year. You shouldn't raise taxes to do that. that to me, that doesn't make sense. I I think you should pay for things on a flow basis, but that makes me much less nervous about things like an infrastructure plan that are intentionally going to last for decades. If it's going to last for N years, you should kind of pay for one over N each year for, for all of the years just to smooth it out. So I think interest rates are low. I think the deficit in the cash accounting sense puts a bunch of pressure the other way. And I think as a moral, ethical thing about intergenerational equity, you should commit to a kind of a long-term budget constraint. But that leaves a lot of wiggle room and argument room over what does that mean today for, for what we should do for infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Eric, would you would you agree with that? Or is there an argument that, you know, paying for these trillions of dollars over 20, 30 years is is somehow, you know, saddling our children with with horrible debts and, and, you know, ethically unsound? Yeah, I mean, I think I generally agree with Austin's view, I guess, in terms of reasons why we still might want to pay for some of the infrastructure bill, maybe I'd add three things. First, you know, if this is an opportunity for us to rationalize certain aspects of the tax code to allow us to raise revenue in other circumstances where we need to, that could be useful. For example, we need probably a lot more spending on education, healthcare, climate, and so on in the future. And it might be the case that for the marginal infrastructure bill, even if it's one or two trillion dollars, it doesn't matter, but like if you start adding all of those things, we get to five, ten trillion dollars of maybe needed public goods, and we probably will need to pay for some of that before 
reaching kind of the concerns of Austin's budget constraint. Maybe second is if we do get more growth, we will have interest rates go up a bit and that will increase the interest expense on debt because we won't be able to retire it immediately. And so I think the CBO is forecasting sort of the interest payment share of the federal budget increasing over the medium term. And, you know, if it goes up to 50% of the budget, which it's not at all close to that, that could actually crowd out some necessary expenditures. And maybe the third thing is that sometimes revenue neutrality has uh, political benefits. Um, You know, it might not be economically sound, but it might actually help uh, summon a few extra votes. So for example, the 86 tax reform was revenue neutral. I think that was useful for generating bipartisan support for the bill. And it seems like that's going to be desired or necessary for at least some of the expenditures that are being proposed. Eric, the the evergreen argument against tax increases and in favor of tax cuts is that they will depress investments and hurt economic activity. Businesses and people will invest less in machinery or in their own education if, if the returns on these investments are taxed at a higher rate. Now, you've written a a paper, you've co-authored a paper just recently that suggests that maybe some of these arguments are overstated, specifically in the instance of the capital gains tax, which is one of the taxes that President Biden wants to raise for high-income Americans. So could you walk us through your thinking here? We're interested in trying to inform the debate on, okay, we've had a method for scoring capital gains tax changes that was developed primarily in the 1980s, 1990s, has been updated a little bit over time as maybe some new evidence has come into light, but we think probably deserves a little bit more of an update because the numbers at stake are quite large. And we think the strength of evidence and the evolution of the financial system over the last 20 or 30 years is dramatic enough that like the numbers could be quite different if you updated those methods. One thing is that historically, a lot of the estimates for how sensitive tax revenues are to the capital gains tax are based on looking at what happens the year after a tax increase or the year right before a tax increase. So very short run responses. But of course, capital gains are the kind of thing where you've got stocks in your portfolio. For example, you've accumulated gains over many years. You have the choice to realize one year or the other but you can also wait a few more years. And so there's a lot of kind of stake, a scope for substitution across time over the medium run even. So those short run responses could involve a lot of kind of people shifting just across the threshold to realize slightly earlier, but then you get much lower realizations the next period. Realization means like selling your stocks, right? To take your profits. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So this will overstate how sensitive these estimates are to the tax. And that will, when you plug that into the scorekeeping machine, the rate goes up, but the size of the tax base goes down a lot. It's funny, a million years ago, these same issues came up because Bill Clinton was elected. When he was elected in 1992, he said, I'm going to raise taxes on high income people. So you saw corporate executives and anybody who had a lot of control of their income through uh, often stock options, which are a form of capital income that gets taxed as personal income for the most part in, in our system. You saw them cash out the stock options, take a huge increase in, in their incomes the year before he comes in office. 
then their income plunges the year he raises rates. But if you looked over a long run, it's that same dynamic that Eric's talking about, that the the short-run fluctuations can be really massive, but the long-run ability of people to never earn income, that kind of doesn't exist. Basically, in order for it to actually cost revenue over a 10 or 20-year period, people would have to choose. They were going to sell the stock this year, and because taxes went up, they're choosing to wait until they die or to give a charitable donation or use one of the other loopholes. Yeah, the more difficult that you make it for this to be gamed, the more they're going to at some point have to sell the stock to take the money and then they'll be taxed then. Exactly, exactly. And then then a second reason that's shorter, but sort of like the way the financial system has evolved over the past 20, 30 years is there's a lot more um, money invested in kind of delegated funds where you have a professional fund manager, you know, managing and choosing the investments on behalf of the limited kind of partners who are investing. Like my and Vanguard account or something like that? Like Vanguard. Me. And also at the top, you have more of the boutique. I'm thinking like venture capital or private equity mm-hmm. or hedge funds, sort of the more advanced investments available to those at the top, because a lot of the gains are held by those at the top. And uh, in that case, you know, there's sort of reasons because you don't trust your fund manager to hold your money forever, that they will have to exit the investments and sort of be forced to. And also maybe the larger funds also have a mix of tax exempt investors and taxable investors because they also invest on behalf of pension funds and endowments. For those reasons, we think probably any tax increase will lead to a smaller response in realizations because of these other reasons why those fund managers are selling stocks that aren't related to the tax code. Though, Eduardo, you may have seen two friends of ours, Joel Slimride and and, uh, Wojtek Kopchuk, wrote a paper about the estate tax and whether People respond by dying if they raise the estate tax rates. They found that people that on the margin, people would give up and just die rather than uh, rather than pay. For when they wrote this paper, they won the they won an ignoble yeah. prize, uh, and and so they have never lived down that. Right. Paper. It is the dismal science sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do remember there's a paper by Enrico Moretti at Berkeley who finds that people do move to die in another state due to changes in estate taxes state by state. That's right. And that, I think, puts an emphasis on like a federal, because, you know, you think cross-state migration is much greater than, say, leaving the U.S. and renouncing your citizenship, which would be required to avoid the federal tax. Yeah, yeah. After the break, what might be the optimal way to pay for a larger government? So, Eric, in your paper, you actually come up with some estimates of what might be an optimal tax. I mean, considering that the elasticity that investors respond to changing tax rates might not be as important once you consider a long frame of time, that means that you can raise a lot more money without worrying about, you know, people gaming the system. So where do you you land? So we presented some what I would describe as illustrative estimates to make the case for why it's important to revisit the methodology under some more recent estimates for this elasticity, which has a wide confidence interval, I will admit. Raising the capital gains tax to something like the ordinary rate and also tightening up some of the loopholes like the step up in basis and charitable giving could raise as much as a trillion dollars over 10 years. And that's just based on simple math where you say, 
you recognize that there's like a trillion dollars per year of capital gains tax base. And so if you increase the rate by 20 percentage points, well, that's $200 billion per year times 10 years, that's $2 trillion. How much does that $2 trillion shrink because of the behavioral response? Mm -hmm. The JCT preferred elasticity would shrink that base almost such that you would raise very little incremental revenue from going up. This sort of They haven't done a formal estimate yet, and so we'll sort of see um, where they end up. But I think that just gives you a sense of how big these numbers are and what's at stake. Yeah. Yeah. And 20% is roughly where capital gains tax is today, right? And you would be increasing it to to 40%, which is what the top income tax rate. I mean, separately, I've talked about how if we just returned most of the aspects of our tax system, this is again written with Owen Sadar, to the 1997 structure. So a time when we didn't think taxes were really onerous and also when the economy was doing pretty well, that was like a 28% rate, I believe. You know, that doesn't seem crazy either and would probably raise significant revenue. Right, right. You know, the thing, as you look at capital gains taxes, the thing I'm struck by, we, we go through periods over the last hundred years in how capital gains will be treated. Should it be treated like regular mm-hmm. money that you earned at a job or should it be given some special privilege? And we've been going through now a period where it's where it's treated special. Um, and the two grounds for why it should be treated with kid gloves at half the rate or, or, or that type of thing relative to, to earned income are either that capital income is so much more sensitive to tax rates that in some sense you can't get away with it, or that to tax capital is so destructive for investment that it's ultimately self-defeating. And I kind of think that on both of those grounds, the last 15 or 20 years have not been super sympathetic to the to the argument that capital income is is in some way holier than than earned income and should be treated differently. Yeah. And we actually see a lot of cases is people will use sophisticated techniques to relabel labor income as capital income. So you'll increase how much compensation you take as stock options, or you'll use the carried interest benefit, or you'll restructure as an S corporation and take low wages and higher profits and sort of, so there's this margin between labor and capital in terms of how you report it to the tax code that doesn't really reflect any change in the underlying economic activity. Where I wanted to go next was, is, is what does this recent history tell us about the impact of changes in, in these in taxes? Austin? If we think about the corporate tax system overall in the U.S. for the last 20, 30 years, I think we learned several things. And most of them lean one way, but certainly not all of them. I mean, we've clearly learned that particularly big multinational corporations have gotten very, very sophisticated in the ways that they attribute that they have no money and no profit and they don't earn anything in places where it seems like they do all of their business and that there are tiny dot nations around the globe, whether in Vanuatu or the Cayman Islands or whatever, where if you were to visit, it doesn't seem like a lot is going on there. But if you just look at the financial 
records of these companies. They're massively profitable on, in, on these tiny islands. And that sophistication in the technology of tax avoidance is why the stated corporate tax rates are so radically different from the actual taxes being paid by these companies. So you had an environment where the U.S. on the books had the highest rate in the world. And in terms of money being collected, was at, at most was at the average and by most measures well below average for, for other rich countries. I think, too, there's an important distinction in the world of The Economist that has largely been lost in the wider political debate, which is, do you want to encourage new investment or do you want to reward capital that has already been built? The investment rate is, let's say, about 10% of the existing capital stock each year. If you change the corporate rate that applies to all the capital that anyone has ever bought, you know that 90% of the money in that tax cut is going to end up being a windfall to things that have all that are already there, yeah. that activities that business would already be doing, regardless of whether you pass this. And that's how we got to the old system. We had a lot of very generous investment incentives that we would give you a tax break if you built a new factory, but we had a high corporate rate for going forward, how much do you have to pay? You can switch to a system with low corporate rates, like the one we're in right now. But it's important to recognize that one of the main things you did when you switched to that system is you just gave a massive handout to the existing capital holders. And this is an environment where existing capital holders have been doing pretty well for the last 30 or 40 years, way better than the average worker has been doing. So I personally have some qualms with a policy that's massive amounts of windfall gains to exactly the people who do not seem to need it. And if you try to justify it on the grounds of, well, in a way, it will trickle down, it'll generate higher wages and, and things like that, then I think you have to confront the fact that we just cut corporate taxes more than they've ever been cut. And there was no mm -hmm. permanent boom to investment. There was no permanent boom to, to wages. There was nothing of the mm -hmm. sort. So listen, I mean, what you just said, Austin, it dovetails well with what Eric's research is is saying in, in the following way, even though, you know, corporate income taxes and capital gain taxes are different beasts, the first order effects that we're thinking about from changing the tax rules are all about gaming the system. They're not really about changing real economic behaviors that affect investment rates and so forth. In the case of the capital gains tax, we're talking about, well, not selling our stock this year, but selling it next year or, or inheriting it to our kids or whatnot. And, and, and in the case of corporations, let's book our profits over here in this tiny little country rather than book them in the United States. These are all kind of like just gamey sorts of things. I mean, I don't know to what extent there's real economic effects 
from these sorts of actions. I don't know, Eric, am I wrong to, to think of this as, as, you know, of less economic significance and more a question of just like tax reform as a way to just prevent gaming? And that, that would be a win-win for everybody? Yeah, on the corporate tax and I think the historical record, I think what we've seen is that tax revenues basically fell in proportion to the sort of change in statutory rates, which tells you that kind of in the short term, there was very little in terms of a real response that, um, you know, increased the size of the pie. I think over the, but share prices responded quite, quite dramatically and quite quickly and, you know, more so for firms that benefited more. On the capital gain stuff, you were asking about this, is it more gaming than it is real activity? And I think the last 20 years of historical record on and research looking at tax reform suggests that these relabeling or shifting or kind of gaming responses are you know much more dramatic especially when you think about kind of taxes that target the distribution of profits that have already been made so things like capital gains tax or dividend tax you know that sort of is a tax on how surplus that's already been created is being distributed and it turns out that like changing those rates change how that surplus gets distributed so it finds the tax efficient form, but it doesn't really change the underlying behavior uh, very much at all. And so I think there's a sort of a background, a strong case to try and rationalize some of the tax rates across the system to remove the incentives to do this kind of gaming. And then we can debate the level of the rate that, you know, affects economic activity. Yeah, that's right. So let's, let me ask a last question. I don't know. We've decided that the first order kind of like task here to raise more money from our systems of taxing capital is to do away with some of these loopholes that we can, you know, actually raise a lot more money without causing economic damage. We just have to make sure that it's, you know, the system isn't super gameable. What is the ideal strategy here? Yeah, so I generally like to think about moving rates into more alignment with each other across the various codes. So if you think like the first top personal rate is 37, or maybe let's say it'll go up to 39.6, we'll call that 40. If we had a corporate rate plus payout tax rate that was kind of aligned with that, um, mm -hmm. you know, we could raise the corporate rate. We'd need to raise the capital gains rate a bit less and the dividend rate a bit less. If we left the corporate corporate rate where it was, we'd have to raise the capital gains and payout rate a bit more. But to just try in general to bring these things closer in alignment, I think would be quite helpful for the system and would raise significant revenue. I would sort of start there. Yeah. Yeah. Austin? Yeah. Look, there's always going to be gaming. And Eric's description is, well, the, the more you equalize the rates, the less gaming you're going to get. On, on my side, I would just refer everyone back. There's a there's a basic finding in economics that the damage done by taxes goes up in the square of the tax rate, which is to say, if you have A and B, a low rate applied to A and B at the same time is better than having a zero on A and a mm -hmm. double the rate uh, on B. So a broad base and a low rate is better than a narrow base with high rates on individual things. And I, I do think that ought to kind of summarize what, what we're trying to do. And, and a lot of that goes to, to Eric's point of equalizing rates across things because that allows you to keep the rates lower because you're applying it to more different stuff. Yeah, and it makes it easier to, you know, enforce the law too because you can you collect information and, and check 
what people are reporting, but there's less incentive to report all the goofy stuff that people end up reporting now to get the better rates. Well, listen, Eric uh, and Austin, thank you so much. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Thanks so much. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland.